We continue today our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, and if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that I, I like to start it in a certain way. Now, I did receive this morning, or not this morning, this week, some gentle feedback that uh, maybe I don't need to do that every week. Uh, to which I replied, um, that, I, I hear that. That's, that's great to hear. I'm still going to do it, though. However, I, I think we'll spend a little bit less time. We'll go through this intro a little bit quicker. So we know the thesis statement of the book of Acts is found in, in chapter 1, verse 8. When it re- We read this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the thesis of the book. The words of Jesus to his apostles commissioning them to go forth. And for the rest of the book, we see them declaring what they have seen and heard about Jesus, most particularly that he rose from the dead, uh, that the Holy Spirit rose him up, and that he is the one that God sent uh, to the earth to save it. So this is the, the testimony that the apostles give. The geographical location that we read in that, first, in that verse uh, kind of structures the book. So we got 1 through 7, the declaration in Jerusalem, 8 through 12, the declaration in Judea and Samaria, and then the rest of the book takes it to the ends of the earth. And of course, as I've said every week, it still continues today. So the book of Acts is not yet over. Uh, we are still declaring the witness about Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now, the, the particular section that our passage is in is in this first bit when we're in Jerusalem. And that period is marked by increasing cycles of persecution. So things are getting worse and worse for the church as they have these three confrontations uh, with the uh, leaders of the church in Jerusalem, uh, which will ultimately culminate in uh, my namesake, Stephen, a guy that's mentioned in our, for the first time here in our text today. Stephen is going to be put on trial and martyred and killed. And that action of, of killing Stephen is what scatters the church uh, so that the proclamation of Jesus goes out into Judea and Samaria. So that's like the inciting incident. It's like you, you hit something and it like boom, scatters out. That's what happens to the church, uh, which we're going to get to in the next couple weeks. Now, our, our uh, text this week is kind of like a pause to look at a little issue that's going on in the church. Uh, so uh, this is like the first conflict that occurs in the church, the first and not the last conflict that will happen within the church, right? Uh, so there, there are two usual sources of division and conflict within God's church. The first uh, is a, like a theological conflict. So people have uh, differ over doctrine, over interpretation of the scriptures. Uh, sometimes those uh, result in the churches splitting apart. Um, and, and sometimes it's good to, con- to have conflicts over theology because theology is important. And if uh, people are straying away uh, from the truth, then there should be conflict in the church over that. Uh, so theological conflict is not always uh, the wrong thing to have happen in church. It's bad. You know, we don't want it to happen. But if, if it needs to happen, it can happen. The second kind of conflict, though, is non-theological. And this, this what we read about today in our, in our text is a non-theological conflict. There are no points of doctrine that are, are in dispute here in this conflict that happens in the early church. So what happens? Well, first of all, there, apparently we have two factions in the early church, among the Jews that have uh, uh, committed their life to Christ, that have become Christians, although they don't use that term yet, but the, the people that are following Jesus as Jews, there are two main factions within them. There's a, a Hellenist or Hellenistic faction and a Hebrew faction, a Hebraic faction. Uh, so those um, divisions, uh, we're going to get into what, what exactly they mean, uh, but uh, the, the, there's a linguistic um, divide within the church uh, between Greek-speaking and Aramaic-speaking uh, Jews. Uh, so one of those groups is uh, overlooked 
when it comes time to distribute uh, the needed goods uh, for widows. So in the early church, in fact, uh, throughout the ancient world, one of the most vulnerable groups within a population are widows. They are often highly constrained in how they can support themselves uh, because of restrictions on uh, what women could and could not do in society. And of course, as widows, they had lost their means of support. Uh, and so all through the New Testament, you see, uh, all through the Bible, really, you see a heart to take care of widows among God's people. So uh, within the church, there are widows that come from this Hellenistic background, and there are widows that come from this Hebraic Hebrew background. And the Hellenistic widows, apparently, when it comes time to give out the, the food, they are getting overlooked. They are not getting what they need. And their Hellenistic brothers come to the apostles and say, our widows are not being supported by the church. So the apostles take immediate action. They call together the whole church. They say it would not be right for us to stop doing what God has commissioned us to do, which is to proclaim, bear witness about him. We can't stop doing that. But we need to make sure that these widows are taken care of. And so they, they choose seven men from among them. So the whole congregation picks, I, I don't know, it doesn't say exactly how they pick them, but they, they elect seven men uh, and, they, and they bring them to the apostles and the apostles lay hands on them. And those people are appointed to, for the distribution of the goods. And then conflict is resolved. Church goes back to spreading and it, it ends with saying that some priests are coming into the church, which is exciting. So that's our, our, our little recap of the story. Now, in, in order for us to, to, to really understand what's going on here, we need to look at uh, what exactly is causing this conflict in the church. So, so what is the substance of the conflict? Why are the Hellenistic widows being overlooked? <clears throat> and then also we want to look at why do they choose this method of resolution? So why do they resolve it in this specific way? Okay, what, is, what caused the conflict? How is it resolved? So the conflict within the church reflects a broader conflict that existed in first century Israel. Uh, at the time of the writing, there, there was a broader conflict that had been developing for years and years and that existed within the Jewish people. And that is a, a, a division between Hellenistic and Hebrew Jews. Hellas is the modern and ancient name for Greece. So a Hellenistic Jew is a Jew who had adopted to, in some way, a Greek culture. Like a, a Greekified Jew. That's how you can read it. Hellenistic Greekified Jew. Now, sometimes this is portrayed as merely a linguistic difference. So you've got your Greek speakers, and they just can't talk to the, the Aramaic speakers. Language problem. Uh, but it, 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 is a it is a language difference. The uh, Hellenistic Jews, most likely, their first language was Greek, and many of them may not have spoken Aramaic. In fact, a lot of these Hellenistic Jews were probably converts who had been visiting Jerusalem and had come to know Christ when they had visited Jerusalem. So they, they probably weren't even from Jerusalem. Uh, so it is a linguistic, but it's, it's deeper than a linguistic um, conflict. Okay, uh, now one, one of the themes that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks is to try and correct this impression that the Jewish people at the time of the apostles, at the time of Jesus, were like this monolithic group that all agreed, that all had the same views, that all like uh, thought the same way about how they should interact with the culture and what their aims were as a people. Uh, that, of course, is not true. There, are, there were tons of divisions in, uh, in Judaism. And one of the starkest divisions that existed was how we as Jews should interact with the dominant Hellenistic culture uh, that existed around them at the time. 
Now, the, the last book of the Old Testament is written, uh, it's called Malachi. It was written in around 450 B.C. So right now, we're in uh, 40 A.D. So about 500 years have passed in between the time when the Jewish people are reestablished in Jerusalem and the present day. And what, one of the things that happened over that period was uh, what historians call Hellenization. The Hellenization of the ancient Near East. So this entire area uh, that we think of as like the, the, the old cradle of empires in the ancient world, stretching from modern-day India all the way down to Egypt and Sudan, modern-day Turkey, this whole area, this massive area, uh, over the course of the 500 years in between uh, Malachi and uh, Jesus, that whole area uh, adapts Greek culture. It's Hellenized. <clears throat> now, how, how did this happen? Well, at, at the time of Malachi, around, around 480 B.C., the Greeks were actually this kind of small, insignificant people group. Uh, they, they weren't very um, wealthy. They weren't very powerful. But they, had, they started to develop... Uh, because of the, the nature of their societal organization, they were organized into these like kind of battling city-states that were uh, to some degree uh, isolated from each other. They developed a culture um, that valued individualism, um, the, uh, it, it, uh, like had a, a slightly lower level of hierarchy than a lot of Eastern cultures. Um, it, it valued uh, uh, literature, it valued history, it valued um, all, all these sorts of things that um, marked it out as different, and it, it started to develop a very sophisticated culture. Uh, now, around that time, around 480 B.C., these uh, Greek city-states came into conflict with the dominant world power at, the time of, uh, at, at that time, which is the Persian Empire. So it, Judea, at this point, was actually a part of the Persian Empire. And so the Greeks and the Persian Empire come in conflict with each other. Now, it, this is a, a very uh, well-known uh, history within uh, kind of the Western world. So if you've ever seen like the movie 300 or something like that, that, that dramatizes the conflict between this like hulking, massive, uh, tyrannical Persian Empire and, you know, these plucky underdog Greek city-states. All they had was like their, their value of the individual and their like kind of uh, unique identity and national culture versus like the slavish East and it's, you know, hordes of barbarians. That's kind of how the, the Greeks um, uh, portray things. And, and if we read their histories, that's, that's kind of how it is. got these massive, uh, uh, non-individualized uh, Persian armies versus the plucky yeoman farmer uh, Greek um, individual. Uh, and, of course, the, who wins? The Greeks win. Now, we, we know these stories not because the Persians told them, but because the Greeks told them. So the Greeks are telling us these stories about their victories. So it, 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 you know, whenever you read uh, an account written by a victor, you just need to take it with a little bit of grain of salt. They, they uh, glamorize their own victories over the Persian Empire. Probably, probably the Greek city-states were so poor and so kind of like on the margins of the empire, the Persians simply did not think it was worth the effort to try and conquer the Greek city-states. So that's probably why they never conquered them. They, they could have if they had wanted to. But anyway, out of this, the Greeks developed this mythology. They developed this strong culture. And over the course of uh, the next 150 years, um, their power and their strength uh, and their, their kind of like distinctiveness uh, develops. And that's the period of, you know, the flooring of classical Greek literature. Guys like Plato and Socrates and, you know, Aristotle, all those uh, famous guys occurred during that period. Around 330 B.C., um, a guy named Alexander the Great... It wasn't called the Great yet. Alexander unites all of the Greek city-states into one army, 
He's the first guy that's able to do this. He unites them all into one army. And then they go, and over the next, like, ten years, they conquer literally everything. Everything that was known in the world at that time. The whole, like, known world in that area is conquered by Alexander the Great. And I have a little map of his conquests. Now, it, in, according to, like, how we understand it, it doesn't look like that big of an area. But imagine, like, before there were modern communications. I mean, this is, like, an immense area. And he conquers it over a, a relatively short amount of time. It only takes him maybe, like, ten years to conquer this entire area. Uh, he just does not lose a battle the entire time. Now, every time he conquered an area, what he would do is he would build a new city. And that city would be built along Greek lines. So it would have like a gymnasium and a theater and a stadium and a hippodrome. Uh, all the, the accoutrements of Greek uh, culture and life would be in this city. And then he would settle some of his Greek soldiers there. And they would kind of be in, in charge of that area. They'd be like administrating that area. Uh, and these new Greek cities, which was all the, where all the plunder would come, would, grew up quickly and uh, adopted to Greek life. So the most famous city that he founded uh, was in northern Egypt, uh, and he named it, very humbly, Alexandria, after himself, Alexander. Uh, like, 90% of the cities that he founded were some variation of Alexandria. It was just Alexander, Alexander everywhere. Uh, you know, rightfully so. He's a pretty great guy. Uh, so all these, like, all this area, there's these Greek cities that are forming up. Now, Alexander dies relatively young, uh, and his empire is divided into four parts. Uh, but all four parts continue to be ruled by Greeks. So these men that rule, the elite, are part of the Greek army that had conquered it. And for hundreds of years after this, this whole area is ruled over by Greek cultural elites. The uh, education systems that they start are where the elites in that area are educated. The language of Greek becomes the language of business, politics, commerce. Uh, the language that uh, if you wanted to advance in the world, you had to learn. The uh, sort of classical education that inculcated Greek culture into people was uh, spread throughout all the elites in all these areas. And so over the course of those hundreds of years, this whole area became Greek. In fact, later when the Romans replace the Greek uh, elites, I mean, the Romans are essentially just Greek themselves. There's a famous saying that uh, Rome conquered Greece and then the Greeks conquered Rome because their, their culture uh, basically uh, highly influenced Roman culture. So uh, just think about like the, the language of the New Testament is in Greek. This whole area, everybody speaks Greek. If you're an educated person, you speak Greek. Uh, so how does this relate? How did the Jews experience this? Well, the Jews were ruled. Um, if you can see on our map there, you see the kind of area of Palestine. Initially, it was ruled by uh, the, the Egyptian Greek empire. Um, but later on, it kind of uh, was ruled by the, the yellow one. Um, the Seleucids, I think they're called. I can never remember how to pronounce it. Anyway, they, they, uh, they conquer Palestine and rule over the Jews. Uh, the Jews themselves, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the ones that are strongly influenced by Hellenization, is primarily two groups of people within, within Judaism. First of all, there's uh, what we call the Diaspora Jews. So Jews had scattered everywhere. Uh, in the era, of, even before this Hellenization occurred, there were Jews that had scattered everywhere, all over this map here. And these Jews, they existed in their own little communities. They had their synagogues. They kept their religion. But because they were isolated from the main body of the Jewish culture, they were more prone to adopting the culture of the world around them, just naturally. You can, you can understand how that would happen. So the diaspora Jews become uh, much more Hellenized. 
And then also the elites become Hellenized. So even in Jerusalem, the city of the Jews, the uh, high priests, all the leaders of the city, they all are educated in, they all become uh, essentially Hellenized Jews. And the, the culture is very strong and very influential. Now, uh, there are aspects of um, Hellenic culture which were uh, very hostile to, to, to Hebrew culture. Um, the uh, sexual ethic, for example, of the Greeks, um, they openly embraced uh, pedophilia, homosexuality, things that were very taboo uh, for the um, Jews. So there were, there were definitely aspects where these, these cultures strongly conf conflicted. But there are other areas where they didn't. So it's not necessarily just a, a wholly bad thing uh, for someone to become more Hellenized. Uh, okay, so if you, if you kind of want to understand, um, uh, the, the group that resisted Hellenization um, uh, were primarily uh, rural peoples, people um, outside of the areas of power, uh, poorer people. Uh, those, uh, re they were Aramaic speakers and they resisted uh, Hellenization much more uh, strongly. If you want to understand the attitude, though, that these Jews tended to have towards Hellenization, you can kind of think about what attitude does like people in the Arab world today maybe have towards America? Okay, so in, in, in the Arab world, uh, the elites learn English. Um, they often send their children to be educated in the West, either in America or Great Britain. Um, the uh, pop culture that they listen to is, or that they pay attention to is highly influenced by American or is even American pop culture. Uh, and so there is a, a strong influence of American culture all over the world, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, if, now, if you're an Arab today, you have um, probably mixed reaction to that, to the power of American um, culture. Uh, American culture exerts a, an attractive force, so it's attractive, a lot of aspects of it. Um, and of course, some of it you just need to, practically you need to adapt in order to get ahead in the world. But also, it, it in, inspires like a, a, a rejection, a reaction against it, a, an assertion uh, of your own culture, a, a fear of loss of your own uh, a distinct identity. Does that make sense? So there's those two kind of reactions that a, a modern person might have to the power of American pop culture abroad. Um, it's similar to what the Jews experienced. So uh, on one hand, Greek culture was attractive, and they needed to adapt it. On the other hand, there was a fear of losing the distinctiveness of Jewish identity. So the, the Hellenized Jews probably thought about the Hebraic Jews. Um, you know, they would think that, oh, these are like uneducated. These are kind of yokels. These are, um, you know, unsophisticated people. Uh, they don't really know how the world works. That's kind of the attitude that a Hellenistic Jew would have towards a Hebraic Jew. Um, you know, when, when Peter and John come before the Sanhedrin, what do they say about them in, in Acts 4? They say that they're uh, unschooled, ordinary men. Unschooled meaning they had not gone through a Greek education, a true Greek education. So that's kind of the attitude that a Hellenized Jew would have towards a Hebraic Jew. And a Hebraic Jew towards a Hellenistic Jew would think, you're compromising. You're accommodating yourself to a, a, an ungodly culture. You're, you're joining with our enemies. Uh, you're, you're, or you're, you're looking down on us. Does that make sense? That, that's kind of the, the division that would have existed in between these people. <clears throat> now, uh, if, if we want to understand what exactly causes the conflict, we have to think about who are the apostles. Are the apostles Hebraic or Hellenistic Jews? Well, the apostles 
almost entirely, are from Galilee. Galilee is rural. Galilee is, is far from the centers of power. Jesus is from Galilee. Remember what uh, one of his, um, I think it was Philip or maybe Nathaniel, when, when they hear, when they're like, we found the Messiah, and they're like, where is he from? Oh, it's from, he's from Nazareth. And the response is like, can anything good come from Nazareth? So that, that's kind of the, the attitude. You can imagine these, these um, Aramaic-speaking, kind of uh, unsophisticated rural Jews, that's, what, that's the group that the apostles represent. And all, a lot of the early followers of Jesus are from that group. <clears throat> so when we come into our conflict, it, it becomes easy to understand kind of what's happening. This division between Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews has been imported into the church. As men have been saved and have come to follow Jesus, the aspects of their culture and, uh, and way of life and thought that existed before they entered the church continues onward after they enter the church. So they're Hellenistic in background and they remain Hellenistic in outlook even as they follow Jesus. Same with the Hebrew Jews. The leadership of the church is almost entirely from one of those two groups, almost entirely Hebraic. And so without intending to, without without ill intent, without a discriminatory motive, the apostles have been favoring the ones that they are familiar with and the ones that they know, the ones that are like them. Not because they don't don't want to involve the Hellenistic Jews, but simply because... uh, uh, Factors that are beyond their control because those are the people that they know and are familiar with. I mean, if, if I gave you $1,000 right now and said, go give this to somebody in need, who would you think of? The first person you think of is probably someone that you know that's in need. So as this money is being put at the apostles' feet, and they're being told to distribute it to those who have need, the first people they're thinking of, the needs that are most easily uh, made, a, made known to them, are from the Hebraic faction within the church because that's where they come from. Does that make sense? So that is the, the, the source. The, the, the effect of this is that existing divisions, that, the divisions that existed before these men came into the church are now imported in and exacerbated. Uh, the divisions are made worse. All right. So uh, that is our conflict. Now, how did the apostles go about solving this conflict? Well, uh, first we have to look at what they decide not to do. Okay? So there is a, a ready available solution. The apostles are spending their days standing in the temple courts, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ as they had been commanded by Jesus when he ascended into heaven. Remember our thesis? You'll be my witnesses. They've been witnessing. And then they go home for the day and they're like, we got another offering. We got to do something with it. Go send it to Joanna or go send it to Mary or something. So you can see that they they, um, have been giving their time to the calling that they've received. And this secondary thing, they have not been able to give sufficient attention to ensure that it's equitable. To ensure that what what happens is an equal distribution of the goods. So one possible solution is for them to stop doing what they're doing in order to spend more time distributing goods. But this, they say, we cannot do. We cannot take ourselves away from from the ministry of the word of God. For that is our commission. That is what God has called us and sent us into this world to do. We are apostles. We've been entrusted with the message, with the witness of Jesus Christ, with the testimony about him. We cannot take time away from that to do something that is less important. <clears throat> uh, 
Now, when, when, when I say <laughs> that the distribution of goods, the charity, the support of widows in need is less important than the ministry of the word, what people sometimes hear is that it is unimportant. In fact, it is, it is of vital importance. And the apostles valued it so highly that they take immediate action to rectify and make sure that it is happening equitably. So they do give a solution. They won't take away from what they've been called to do. But what they decide to do instead is to take a special group of people, seven in number. The Jews love the number seven, you know. Seven people, they're going to appoint them for the specific task of ensuring that the goods are distributed equally. Now, significantly among those seven are many names that are Greek. So they've taken from this group of seven, and they've chosen Hellenistic Jews to be on this committee that distributes the, the goods. Stephen, my namesake Stephen, is from the Greek word Stephanos, which means crowned one, or somebody that's won in athletic competition. Which, of course, when I was born, my parents predicted great things for me in, in the field of athletics, uh, which I have not yet fulfilled. But, uh, so that's a Greek name. Stephen is a, a, a Hellenistic Jew. And many of those, in fact, one of them is a proselyte, meaning that he was a Greek man who became a Jew. Talk about a Greek background. So what they're in doing when we're doing this is they want to ensure that in the, in the distribution of the goods, every part of the church is represented so that all the needs are heard and known so that when the goods are distributed, no one is missed. That is a solution that they come to. A perfect solution for their problem because it, it enables uh, justice to be done to all, all the people in the church while not taking them away from uh, the job that God has delivered unto them, and which indeed is the primary task of God's people. Lessons from this. That's our text. What are our lessons from this? Well, I encourage you uh, in your personal devotional time, and of course, as you go to community groups, to dive deep into these two lessons I'm going to give you. So I'm I'm only going to brush on the surface of what you can get out of this. Uh, So there's more to be had. But the first lesson is that inequality can exist within the church as a reflection of society without the intention of any individual within the church. So the apostles were not thinking to themselves, we got to make sure that those Hellenistic widows don't take anything away from our Hebrew widows. They were not intending to cause division by what they were doing. They were not evincing a prejudice against Hellenists. It was unintentional. Now, in in God's church, all men come equally before the throne of God. Praise Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ invites all men everywhere to have equal access to God. Because our heritage as sons of Adam, as sinners, is enough to bring low even the highest placed person. But the call that God has put on our hearts is enough to raise up even the lowest. We come equal. The divisions that exist in our world are not reflected as we come before the throne of God. However, on the church, as long as it's in this earth, is is an institution that exists within the earth. And the people that are in it come into it as people that come out of societies that are riven by divisions. Divisions of ethnicity, divisions of class. And until this world is like 
wrought, you know, is remade without sin in it, we will still struggle with these divisions. And they will still tend to be reflected in the hierarchies and the priorities of our churches. And the solution that God has given for that is that we should endeavor, endeavor to bring into the leadership, to give a voice to every part of the church of God, especially those that in the society that we live in tend to be voiceless or marginalized. We as a church need to correct that by bringing a vo- their voice into our, our leadership and into our um, like authority structures within our church. There's a lot more that could be said about that. We could, we could go into all the implications of that for a long time. But let's move on to our second lesson. The public proclamation of the word of God is the primary task of the church and its leadership. Okay, as I said, because uh, the uh, charity in the church, the works of mercy, are less important than the preaching of God's word, does not mean that they are unimportant. In fact, it is an inevitable outworking of the proclamation of God's word because it brings us into a church in which we are one people, one family of God. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. So charity, the extension of mercy to God's people that are suffering all around the world, is an inevitable outworking of the gospel of God. But it cannot be proclaimed until the gospel has been proclaimed. Until the resurrection of Jesus has been declared until the summons to all people has been issued from the church to come and experience life, to come and eat, to know God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ in history. This task is primary because it is this task that drew us into the church. You are here today because of the proclamation ministry of God's word. Perhaps it was your parents or a family member, or a friend, or a ministry, but somebody proclaimed God's word to you and brought you into his church. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter and John say that to the Sanhedrin. And so God's word must be proclaimed for us so that it will have the effect of reconciling men to God and in that reconciliation, reconciling them to each other that the divisions and the inequities of our social world may be dissolved in God's church. This is, this is the, the order of events as God lays them out here. So let us uh, devote ourselves as a church to the proclamation of God's word. Would you join me tonight as we pray together? Please. And join me now as I pray. <clears throat>